Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show to everyone in the United States and around the world. I must tell you that we now have 17 countries with listeners uh, and getting larger in China. So, but there are countries where there may only be one listener, like Mongolia or like Finland. Here's what I have to say to you, one listener. You can help me change the world. You can tell uh, people, share it with other people with disabilities, uh, tell other people with disabilities about this show, uh, especially English speaking. You are making a difference. And, you know, I have to have a shout out to Richard Roberts from the State Department. I first met him in South Korea. Now he is in Japan. Also, Gang Young, who is in South Korea, uh, another great person. Venyamin, Venyamin in Kazakhstan. Venyamin, I'm always thinking about you. With everything going on in the Ukraine, I'm sure that's nerve-wracking where you are. And to all my brothers and sisters across the board in the Ukraine, but specifically people with disabilities, I am always with you, always thinking about you. And then we have Cheryl Harris. Oh, my goodness. I met her uh, when when I worked remote through Zoom on a program with Tunisia and Libya. And now she's right back here in the United States at the State Department. So awesome to have you back here, Cheryl. These people all work for the State Department. They're all with the embassies, and they were all with me, other than, of course, with Cheryl when I did this by Zoom. I also did one for the country of Nigeria by Zoom. But with everyone else, I was there for a week. And I'm going to tell you, if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have been able to spread all this news. So I think they are all awesome. And Yoshiko Dart. I never forget you on a show, Yoshiko. Special shout out to you. And you know what? I have to thank my sponsor, Highmark. They've been the lead sponsor for years. And this company is just so awesome about employing people with disabilities. So thank you so much, Highmark, for being the sponsor of this show. Now, I have to tell you listeners something, okay? I couldn't wait for this show today. Could not wait. Could not (laughs) wait because I have... Ready? Ready, Sherelle? Harvard (laughs) graduate. Social epidemiologist. Doctor. (laughs) And guess what? Now the head of the Ubuntu Center. I am so proud to know (laughs) Sherelle Barber. She is known internationally, and she is a true civil rights leader. It's just so exciting to have you, Dr. Sherelle Barber. What an honor to have you with us today. Um, I just love you. I just admire you (laughs) so much. But you know what? We have 
you just heard, listeners around the world. Uh, and this Absolutely. is Dr. Sherelle Barber. Why don't you share with them a little bit about you, like where you grew up and, you know, then yeah. when you went on with your education and then, you know, what caused you to be this great pioneer, in, not just in social <laughs> epidemiology, but health, health care uh, disparity, all these things you're doing. Uh, what led you to do that? But let's start from the beginning. Yeah, wow. So, Joyce, you always hype me up in ways that I'm always humbled by, and uh, I'm grateful for our connection that happened during this pandemic and uh, that we continue to be connected. And um, But, again, just so humbled by all of those accolades <laughs> um, and um, appreciative to be able to share virtual space um, or radio wave space with you today. Okay, so wait a minute. They're not, the they're, they're not just—they're not accolades. They're facts. Facts, facts. <laughs> okay, ahead. we'll go. Go ahead. We'll go with facts. But so I, so I, I, you know, I wrestled with how I wanted to introduce myself, and what I figured I'd do is say, kind of, you know, tell a little bit about my origin story. And so, what I say often in audiences is that I am a daughter and a product of the South. Um, I grew up in eastern North Carolina, and I am very much connected to the legacy of powerful black women in particular, um, really beginning with my great-grandmother, Letta Sankees, um, who was a force to be reckoned with in her community. Um, I am also, I feel very much connected to the many black women warriors of the South, uh, folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Ida B. Wells, and so many others upon whose shoulders I stand. Um, I am here today because of their work, their 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 fight, um, what they did um, in the face of so much danger, um, but did it so courageously. And they did it um, because it needed to be done, right? Um, and so that legacy is a part of who I am and keeps me grounded and also keeps me bold and courageous as well. Um, a little bit about my educational background. I'm also a really proud Bennett Bell. I don't know if any of your listeners know about Bennett College for Women in Greensboro, North Carolina, but it is one of two historically black colleges for women. Um, founded in 1873 in the basement of um, a church uh, by four, four formerly enslaved individuals. Um, and Really, Bennett is where, you know, as a woman, as a young woman, I began to find my way um, where I was challenged to not only think about my career and what I wanted to do, what my job was, but also my purpose and where I saw the very first examples of what it meant to be both a scholar, someone who uh, interrogates the world around them, thinks critically, but also an activist um, and that those two worlds and two parts of who I am and who I've, you know, I'm growing and continuing to grow into don't have to be separated. Um, and so at Bennett, you know, we learned early on that in the 1940s, there were Bennett women who were marching and boycotting the unequal accommodations in public spaces in downtown Greensboro uh, that, that were Bennett women who were instrumental in the 1960s sit-in movement. Um, a lot of folks remember that quote-unquote A&T4 for young black men from A&T who were at the study encounters, but the, the pre-meetings to planning that happened on Bennett's campus, and Bennett women were very much a part of that um, and planning to be a part of that first 
uh, sit-in that happened. And so uh, that's a part of the legacy. Um, we also at Bennett had a former SGA president, Sandy Smith, who was an organizer and activist who worked uh, with workers' rights um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, who stood up very courageously against the Ku Klux Klux Klan uh, in the city, uh, who, in fact, was, you know, um, tragically um, assassinated during the 1979 uh, Greensboro Massacre. Um, And so I bring all of this history and context up because that's really what has shaped me as both a a Black woman, as someone who strives to be, um, have an impact in the world and really challenges you know, these systems and structures that caused the poor health that we see, you know, in particularly in Black communities um, and in Black communities in the South. And so um, the frame in which, you know, I come and the kind of context that I bring into my work is one that is informed by all of these things, this this context that is the U.S., this, the United States, this history and legacy of systemic and structural racism that has shaped the lives and livelihoods and so many other things for Black people in this country. Um, And then there's data, because I'm an epidemiologist. There's also data that informs my interest in this work. And so, for example, Black people in the South have higher rates of just about every leading cause of death, um, particularly when it comes to chronic illness. And a lot of my work has uh, been focused on things like heart disease and diabetes and hypertension uh, in the South. Um, But if you look nationally, Black people in the United States die at higher rates on nine of the 15 leading causes of death. Um, They also die not only at higher rates, but at younger ages. And this is, again, a pattern that we've seen since data on mortality has been collected nationally. Um, And then another piece of data that drives my work is the fact that when we look at segregated Black communities across the country, we find places where the life expectancy differences between communities that are merely less than 10 miles apart being upwards of 20 years in some cities. So in in Philadelphia, where I'm currently um, living, you know, we have um, black communities that have, you know, um, life expectancies in the 60s. And just up the road, you have white wealthy communities where that life expectancy is well into the 80s. Right. And so these large health inequities over relatively short distances that cannot be explained just by people's behavior or or and even access to care, but all of the kind of conditions um, that shape and form health. And so um, that that piece of data, the history, you know, struggle, um, as well as the fact that, you know, I recognize that black people are more than the sum of the harm that has been done to us. And so it's also the powerful legacy of activism locally, nationally, and globally that where we have alongside of all of justice-oriented individuals challenge these systems and structures that prevent our communities from really thriving. And so in, in the last couple of years, I've described that as recognizing both the pain that we have endured uh, because of these legacies of racism and other forms of oppression, but also the immense power uh, that we have also wielded in the face of these these systems and structures, and how that informs why we have these higher rates um, in worse health outcomes 
and especially here, as we've seen with COVID, but also how we can then leverage that power that we've always had to really transform our communities, our states, our nation, and our world. Um, so that's me in a nutshell. I know that was a lot, <laughs> um, oh, no, but that's that me, so... and that's the work that I do. And that's, yeah. you know, as a social epidemiologist, ultimately I'm bridging my my passion for science and my passion for social justice, you know, to really try to make a mark and an impact in the world. That's a question I had. So you, you, when you went to high school and, you know, Bennett, did, did you always have this interest in science? I mean, how did that happen? Well, yeah, both. no. So I, I was always, I love growing up. I loved science and I loved and at five, I declared I was going to be a doctor um, and actually a doctor and a preacher. I don't often say that in public, but that's what I said when I was five. And then, but the doctor thing was always a medical doctor. And so it was at Bennett, um, at Bennett as an, um, a rising junior, um, I was told about a program at Harvard. It was a summer program in biostatistics and a friend of mine previously, uh, to to the summer that I went, she had gone. She's like, oh, you have to do this. And I was like, what is it about? She's like, public health. I was like, what is public health? And so anyways, but I went because it was health, right? And I was all, I've always been interested in health. And like I said, had had this, had this vision of me just, you know, going to medical school, finishing medical school and being a physician. But when I went to this program at Harvard, I was introduced to this one, a research project where researchers were literally looking at things like discrimination and then how that affected our, our biology, right? So, like, they looked, they had these measures of discrimination and people's experiences of discrimination and then how that then, like, um, it impacted a biomarker, interleukin-6, which is on the stress pathway. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really powerful. Like, you can think about these, like, big, broad social structural things and then, like, see how it actually changes your biology. And then I was like, wow, that must have an impact on how, you know, why we're seeing these higher rates, you know, for so many different health outcomes for black folks. Um, so that happened. And then reading in a paper from 1914 called the Negro health problem, where m most of the rationale for these higher rates of disease for blacks in the early, or the, early the early part of the 20th century were explanations that blamed them for their conditions. Uh, so they were, you know, their, it was their behaviors or what they weren't doing. And I was like, uh, what about the fact that they, you know, there was slavery that happened less than 50 years ago and, you know, and all these other, you know, harms that had been caused. Like, why aren't we taking that into account when having these explanations about folks' health? And that was in the, that was, this is a paper written by a white physician in 1914. Fast forward, and when I was looking around at the discourse about health, it was still this blaming the victim or blaming black people for their health conditions as opposed to the broader systems and structures that shape opportunity, that shape even our choices and food to eat and things like that. And so I was like, the narrative is still the same. And we, I, so when I, so doing this program, like just like, a light bulb went off and then I then pursued kind of further training at UNC for my master's and then uh, completed my doctoral work at Harvard in social epidemiology where I continue to refine my understanding of like what are the contextual or the structural drivers of health inequities particularly for black people um, and then since then have expanded that not only to black people in the United States but also in Brazil and so 
<laughs> it's been a journey. It's been a journey of discovery. It's been a journey of, you know, investigation. One of my my favorite people to quote on what what why research is so important is Azor Neale Hurston. She says it's poking and prodding with a purpose. And I've been poking and prodding with these questions about racial health inequities and why and going deeper and deeper into those root causes of disease um, for for black folks and for other marginalized racial groups in this country. You know, I have a question for you when they when, and. and Racist, this arrogance of, oh, it's their fault, you know, they, it's them, they're, they're causing this to mm -hmm. themselves. Um, but one of my questions is, with this uh, healthcare disparity, and, mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned all those diseases, higher proportion, um, I'll bet it's a myriad of things, right? It's not having access mm -hmm. to uh, mm -hmm. the world of whole foods, obviously. I don't mm -hmm. mean just them, but any place where there's good produce, you know, any anywhere mm -hmm. where you can get food like that. Um, and uh, even the restaurants in the area, you know, being mm -hmm. all fast food. Uh, but is exactly. it like... And not being able to get access to doctors. What is it? Is exactly. that true? Is it like a whole myriad of things that cause this? Absolutely. No, that's exactly right. Right. So it's it's this combination of you know compounded effects, right? Of and it's concentrated within certain communities, right? So part of the work that I've done, you know, I I've gone, you know, I drive through Philadelphia all the time. And just you see it change. You see the landscape change, whether it's the housing conditions, whether it's the access to certain kinds of foods, whether it's, you know, all these things. And that's a byproduct of disinvestment within these communities, you know, not valuing the residents in these communities um, and, and really denying, you know, um, so many different opportunities, et cetera for so many decades in, in, in our communities. And then on top of that, the limited access to health care, whether it's due to lack of health insurance or literal access in terms of being able to get to a doctor uh, for all these things. So the people that we harm the most through all these systems and structures and lack of, you know, all these things that we need to live, then those same people don't get the best quality health care. And that is, and that is, and what I'll say is since we're, you know, and still in the middle of this pandemic, that's exactly what we've seen, you know, in this pandemic where, uh, and why we've seen such glaring inequities, you know, um, racial inequities, inequities related to poverty and other things. Um, and why in this moment, you know, racism as a public health crisis has, 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 has emerged as um, as a as as a, a part of now the public health discourse, um, and how we have to really grapple with the complexity of of what shapes people's health and why certain groups of people um, have you know these kind of glaring health inequities across all these different health outcomes. Um, it's not a like you know one of my professors used to say it's not a bad draw of luck or it's not a part of the uh, quote-unquote genetic lottery or biological determinism it really are they are really are these social and structural determinants shaped by racism and other forms of oppression in this country that really lead to this right so it's complex and that's what makes it so i think 
you know, both it's important to understand and, and do this work. Um, it's also intellectually, you know, it, you know, just it's a, it's, these are issues that, you know, allow me to think deeper and critically and not only by myself, but with really brilliant collaborators um, in this work who are really trying to grapple with this, this, these issues. And not only just for the sake of, gra- you know, showing the data, but then what do we do with that? How do we leverage that data to actually make some type of change? Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, you you have this father that's sort of well-known, Reverend Dr. <laughs> William Barber, and I have to ask you, I mean, it's like, wow, talk about civil rights. You know, it was around you at all times. What was that like as a child growing up with him as your father? Yeah, no. Yeah, I tell, I tell folks all that I claim him most, most days. <laughs> But yes, um, Reverend Dr. Barber, William Barber is, you know, is is my father. Um, what I will say, I want to just say this, you know, um, I, and I don't say this just because I'm his daughter, but I really do feel like my father is one of the most brilliant, uh, one of the most courageous, and one of the most compassionate human beings I know. Um, and I've said that publicly to him, so this isn't new. Um, but I say that because what I have most admired about the work that he does is that he does it from this deep love of people. Uh, He just doesn't like to see people hurting, you know? Um, And that has been something that has been characteristic of him for so long and for so many years. Um, And it is something that, you know, uh, in the work that I do, um, you know, and the work that, you know, I have, you know, four younger siblings, and I think all of us are really trying to um, find that way of how we um, bridge both kind of our intellectual gifts and other gifts that we've been given with this deep love of people um, in different ways. And so both he and my mother uh, challenged us um, to really use whatever we've been given, our gifts, uh, to make the world a better place. And, and we're all, each of us are trying to do that in different ways. Um, it also, so also growing up, um, we were, <laughs> I often tell folks, you know, everyone knows him and knows like the Moral Mondays and, you know, the, now the Poor People's Campaign and all of the, that work. But, you know, this, his work and activism builds on, you know, decades worth of work that started when he was in high school and into college. Um, and I also remember that he often took us along on, you know, you know, doing this work. So sometimes we were the only ones at the press conferences um, growing up. And um, he, he took us into, you know, meetings with decision makers. And people were probably like, well, why is this kid here? And it was like he wanted to show us early that, you know, you never let anybody intimidate you. You, you are just as important and valuable as they are. And folks who hold an office you know, that that doesn't make them any better than you, and, and that means you can engage with them, challenge them when they're not doing what's right, you know, for um, for the people, right? And so that kind of that, you know, being there, seeing it, um, uh, seeing that has just has had a profound impact on me and the work uh, that I'm engaged in, and I'm just really, really, you know, proud, you know, to um, to to really, you know, just, to, to be his daughter, but also, you know, to see him, you know, do the really necessary and powerful work that he's doing um, um, in this moment and knowing that it just, you know, it's it's part of who he is uh, and what he's been doing for so many, so many decades. So, 
Yes, he is a great man. I'll never forget when I was on that first, we were on a call with friends uh, and, and Sherelle's father is on the call. And the, mm-hmm. our friend Sam said to me, Joyce, would you like to go first? I said, absolutely not. I defer <laughs> to Reverend Dr. William Barber. Uh, I mean, I just think so highly of him. He, he is changing the world. And he did a good absolutely. job, Sherelle, with his daughter. He <laughs> did a great job. So, Dr. Sherelle Barber, you have a great position at the Ubuntu Center. Um, So let's talk about it. What is it? When was it launched? Why was it launched? Why is it called Ubuntu? Um, And then when we're done, I just want to, if you don't mind giving the website in case a person could make a donation. So let's start first. Tell us about the Ubuntu Center. Absolutely. So website is UbuntuCenter.org. You'll find more information about, you know, our mission and our vision there. Um, We actually also a couple of weeks ago just released our grounding document, uh, which really talks about um, our the moment, our process, and the approach uh, to developing the center. But I'll give a little bit of background. So now, gosh, about two years ago, um, I, I can't believe how how much time flies. You know, we you know collectively we were experiencing the global uprisings and protests in response to the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis uh, police um, officer. And for better or for worse, that you know horrendous and horrific and tragic incident just continue to remind us of, you know, again, the deep-seated racism that exists within our country that manifests in that, in that, it manifested in that very violent way, but manifests in so many different ways, as I've talked about earlier. Um, and so, you know, in 2020, I think we were, you know, so we have this, this incident, this instance that is not, you know, an anomaly. We also have a global pandemic that is, you know, the data um, was showing that it was disproportionately impacting Black and Latinx and Indigenous populations. Um, and and really, the juxtaposition of these two things caused a lot of folks to kind of have a light bulb go off um, around something that many of us in the field or a lot of us, my colleagues in the field that I collaborate with, had already known that racism is deadly, right? That that racism in its various and interconnected forms has deadly consequences. And that kind of led, you know, you know, in many ways to folks seeing racism as a public health crisis. So, and, and we can talk about what that means, but, and why, you know, it's, it's, it should have been always, you know, kind of at the forefront of how we were thinking about it. And just to give you some ideas about before the pandemic, about 20 jurisdictions, that's like either states or local health departments or local cities had declared racism a public health crisis or problem or threat. But by, you know, the end of last year, over 200 jurisdictions around the country, and that's at the state and the local at local levels, had declared racism a public health crisis. So we're seeing this uptick of of people recognizing racism is shaping health, particularly for black folks and other people of color and communities of color. Um, and 
then um, and students at our school um, at the Drexel Dornside School of Public Health, you know, in many of the meetings and town hall meetings that followed this incident were like, we we need a center. You know, we want to have a space where we can really dig into what that means and do the both the research as well as the action that's necessary to address this, you know, really major public health problem, right? And so in the summer and into the fall of 2020, I was tasked by the dean at my school, the Dornside School of Public Health, Dean Ana Diaz-Rue, to the lead the planning um, of a center that would be focused on this particular subject, this area. And over about a six-month planning period, um, we began to be very intentional. Um, and the two central questions we asked were, what was necessary because of what was necessary because of the pain that we were we experienced because of racism and what's possible because of the power that we see also embedded especially within movements and in activism and in organizing and those two central questions um help to guide how we would be very intentional in meeting the magnitude of this moment with a center that had a bold and audacious vision. And that vision is just simply a future free of systems of oppression, full of new possibilities to, through bold collective action and an equitable world in which all individuals and communities are, and, um, are healthy and thriving. Um, and our mission is really to unite a diverse set of partners to generate the necessary evidence we need to accelerate anti-racism solutions, um, and to promote the health and well-being of communities locally, nationally, and globally. And that's bold. <laughs> and it's a lot. Um, but we said this moment, especially with what we've seen and what we're continuing to see, needs nothing less than that kind of bold mission. And over and since the planning process ended, we were um, got a generous philanthropic multi-million dollar gift uh, from Dana and uh, David Dornsife. Um, we have recruited two new faculty who also happen to graduate from Harvard who will be joining us in the fall. We've brought on movement fellows and uh, strategic council members who are both represented locally, nationally, as well as gl globally, mostly in Brazil. Um, and we're just continuing to kind of lean into the fact that this moment requires us to bring diverse perspectives together to understand these root causes and the historical legacies of racism, not only here in the, this country, but around the world. Um, and also what is the work that needs to be done to actually act, right? So not just research for research sake, but research that can really be community driven and movement informed and leverage for transformative change. And so that's our work in a nutshell. Again, um, the Ubuntu approach document on our website kind of outlines that even more. Um, and then I'll, and then you asked me about the name. So very early on in the process, um, we developed a set of principles that would guide our work. And one of the, and the student on the planning committee said, you know, we got to make sure we don't lose sight of the humanity in all of this. Because as researchers, sometimes we get caught up in the data and the numbers. So she was like, these are real people with lived experiences, and we want to make sure that we're human 
centered in our approach. And so we we kind of sat with that and made sure that that was really our kind of grounding and foundational principle, organizing principle. And then as we were going along, the the idea of Ubuntu really kind of emerged from the process and how we were doing the work. And Ubuntu was a South African principle that literally means I am because we are. Uh, and it really gets at the depths of our interconnected uh, humanity um, and that the work that we're doing to combat these structures and systems really is work that combat structures and systems that have attempted to deny certain groups of their humanity. And that's not right, right? And so fundamentally what we're saying is we need to be as, you know, as a center as we do this work, really focused on restoring kind of that deepest sense of interconnectedness between between everyone, right? And that these systems of oppression try to deny us of that. Um, and so Ubuntu emerged from that, and it's also inspired by work that I've done in Brazil um, and work done by Brazilian activists, uh, Afro-Brazilian activists um, and politician, Marielle Franco, who was assassinated in 2018. Um, her campaign slogan when she ran for a local city council in, in Rio de Janeiro was Ubuntu or I am because we are in Portuguese, uso porque no somos. And so her life and legacy is also very much entwined in how we were thinking about building out the center and how we do this work, um, take a collective approach and a human-centered approach uh, to doing this work in this moment. Uh, so I know I've said a mouthful. <laughs> you may have some questions, but that's that's the work. That's what we've been engaged in. It's been so powerful. It's been inspiring to, you know, just by choosing to be and show up in this way, people are inspired by the work that we're doing and the work we'll continue to do, you know, as we, you know, build things out over the coming years. But we're super excited to have birthed this center in the midst of all that's going on in our world. And we, we hope that it is really a testament of, you know, our way of honoring the dead our way of honoring ancestors and our way of being good ancestors. And what I mean by that is future generations who come after this moment will ask all of us, what did you do? What did you do when everything around us seemed to be falling apart? Did you stand in the gap for justice, for equity, for real liberation? Did you stand on the sidelines or did you try to do something to make sure that that my generation, um, our generations, actually had a pos- you know a possible future, and that's really what we're trying to do with the work we're doing at the Ubuntu Center. That is so awesome. How someone listening or a company, how do they make a donation, Sherelle, to the Ubuntu so Center? So there is on our website there at the bottom. If you scroll down to the bottom. There is um, a button that says invest now, uh, and that'll take you straight to the um, Drexel University website. And there's a, um, you can choose the Ubuntu Center if you want to make a gift uh, or make a donation or invest in the work. Oh, okay. Well, hey, everyone, get out that checkbook or credit card. I mean, you know, <laughs> you can't be saying, wow, this is so great. But to do those things, you need money. 
So, uh, and I am behind (laughs) this 100%. I mean, Sherelle, I cannot wait to visit the Ubuntu Center. I cannot wait. Can't wait. Excited. (laughs) Well, listen, we got to take a quick news break, and then we're going to be right back with Dr. Sherelle Barber. Perry, are you on? Thanks for having me. Of course, Perry. Perry Jude Radisic, how are you today? Uh, I'm fine, and I have some great news. Uh, one of the most critical issues facing our community, our disability community, is accessible, affordable, and reliable transportation. We have a history in most places in the United States of inequitable transportation, and this is due to the lack of accessibility, the lack of affordability, reliability, and the lack of availability to transportation. So to find solutions to increase equity in transportation, the U.S. Department of Transportation has reestablished the Advisory Committee on Transportation Equity. Now, this advisory committee is going to provide independent advice and recommendations to the Secretary of Transportation regarding civil rights and transportation equity. We all know the Secretary of Transportation is Pete Buttigieg. Now, the Advisory Committee on Transportation Equity was first established in 2016. This committee is expected to meet quarterly over the next two years and will include up to 25 members, pulling from academia, the business community, community-based organizations, government, disability, and veterans organizations. The Biden administration has made diversity, equity, and inclusion a priority, and this advisory committee reflects the U.S. Department of Transportation's strategic direction to carry out the president's diversity, equity, and inclusion plans. We all know advocacy matters. So if you are interested in serving on the advisory committee, the U.S. Department of Transportation is asking you to submit a statement of interest, which is like a cover letter, and a resume by Wednesday, June 15th. So that's just next week. At disabilityrightspa.org, we have lots more information on the advisory committee and the application process if you're interested. So go to disabilityrightspa.org and click on today's Advocacy Matters segment on the homepage. You can find out all about the advisory committee and how to apply. Wow, that is so exciting. We're finally getting somewhere. Slow as it may be, we're finally getting somewhere. Perry, thank you once again for that update because you're keeping us on target. DisabilityRightsPennsylvania.org. Thank you. so DisabilityRightsPA.org. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. So many things we're working on there, Dr. Barber, so many things. I do have to (laughs) ask you um, a couple questions. First question about Buffalo and the brutal shooting of children in Texas. But let's start with Buffalo. Do you think this gun control uh, and everything going on with guns has a strong connection to racism and poverty? Absolutely. And I mean, I, the first thing I guess I'll, I'll do is just sit with 
you know, just the tragedy of it all. You know, that was um, elderly, mostly elderly folks, just in the black in a black community um, that was targeted um, very intentionally by this white supremacist. Um, and that, you know, I, I reflected on uh, Twitter that, you know, this, this, this person used data, you know, it's a really exact harm. And so, as you, you know, I kind of alluded to, it's this combination of the laws that need to be passed to restrict the access to, to guns and, 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 and these kinds of things. Um, and the deep-seated racism that just permeates so much of the the fabric of our our country and that our country really, if we're really honest with ourselves, um, has has been built on um, and is, you know, sustained in many ways by violence uh, on so many different levels, right? Um, And so what happened in Buffalo is tragic, but it's not apart from this larger narrative of racism and white supremacy in this country that has to be addressed along with gun laws to prevent, you know, people from having these, you know, kinds of weapons that can cause so much harm and so much pain and so much tragedy. So, you know, I, you know, it was, and it's, it was so hard to sit with the emotions of it all. It's rage. It's, it's 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 rage it's it's sadness it's you know so many different things come up um when having to again experience another uh traumatizing and deadly um reminder of 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 of, of racism in our country and so my prayers go out cuz it's not even been a month to the families in that community prayers go out to that community um just itself and who are probably still reeling, even though kind of the cameras are no longer there. Um, and just hoping that we just find a way, you know, to move, to, to, to just do something, you know, I'm just tired of like, Oh, this other, you know, this mass shooting happened, this mass, you know, it's just, it's frustrating. Um, it's similarly with the, these, um, you know, uh, the children and teachers, um, in Texas, right? Like so tragic. And what's even, you know, the, yes, the guns and the person who, who, who did the murdering, but also finding out the inaction of the police officers, you know? Um, and that, you know, these kids were calling 911 for help and, and people didn't act in a way, you know, to prevent some of this stuff. So there's again, a complicated web of things that are very much rooted in racism uh, and poverty and so many other systemic issues that have to be addressed simultaneously if we really are going to get to the root causes of these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't help it. I'm always thinking, so what would happen if this was like a, in a suburb, a white school, white kids, what would happen? Mm-hmm. How would all these things be different? Or if at the supermarket, uh, an African-American went in with the gun, would he be walked out by the police? Right, right, yeah. So, I mean, I've got to tell you, we've got, got, you know, love your neighbor as yourself is morality. mm -hmm. We really, you know, have to follow 
your father and you know his preachings in this area but we we also have to be honest and authentic and look at things exactly. the way they are and and you know my yeah. i am with you with those families you know um reverend al sharpton i heard him say remember see how this is on the news right now just like that mm -hmm. shooting in buffalo it'll be gone we'll move on but those families are still there they're yeah, still there absolutely still yeah. through all this uh and what is terrible about this is that we're getting to the place where we say up oh, it's another shooting you know mm -hmm, that's how like mm -hmm. as if we're getting so used to this uh there's another yeah. mass shooting Call, people call you did you know there was another shooting you know whereas when mm -hmm. i grew up it would have been oh my god you know oh look what happened uh but it's it isn't you know it's still terrible but it's so often now it's really sad it is yeah. well in case yeah. i have to move on to something i mean you all don't know this but i have my own personal doctor when it comes to COVID. <laughs> and that's Dr. Sherelle Barber, who I am. Hi, Sherelle, what do you think about this? Uh, but you know, COVID definitely impacted, as you mentioned, to a large percentage, the black community and the disabled community. There's this exactly, intersectionality. Exactly. The African American and have a disability. I mean, there's all this intersectionality mm -hmm. that, that, occur, that Absolutely. happens. Absolutely. But as you and I frequently talk about this, when you go to stores or you go outside or you go shopping, it's almost like, yay, it's gone. No mask, no social distancing. Mm -hmm. Not for all mm -hmm. people, but the majority. I mean, most stores you go in, you're lucky enough, you see one mask. On some, mm -hmm, I remember mm -hmm. when you said to me, "Oh no, Joyce, if you go to this event, wear a mask, even though everyone will be staring at you, like you know you're off the deep end." And and you know people even say to me, "You're vaccinated. You can see mm -hmm. now this is." Ending. But Dr. Sherelle Barber, is COVID gone? No, it's not, and the data proof shows it. <laughs> It's actually not gone, and unfortunately, we're seeing another um, surge in our cases, um, which, you know, unfortunately, in the past, what the, the pattern has been there'll be a surge in cases, and then very shortly after, within two weeks or so, we'll begin to see the rise in de hospitalizations and deaths, and oh, it's been so far. You know, we have conversations all the time, and I think, you know, our push you know, for me and my, you know, when we, when we reached a million deaths not too long ago, um, actually when we reached a 900,000 deaths back in February, um, I posted something that said our, our, um, acceptance of mass death is inhumane. Right. And, and really what we're dealing with right now is this folks want to kind of decision makers at every level want to push to normal, um, but it's just not it's just not the case. And we have gotten rid of every, you know, besides vaccines, every mitigation strategy uh, that would prevent the kinds of deaths that we've seen that, again, as you know, that has been disproportionate for black, indigenous, Latinx, poor folks, 
folks with disabilities. And it's also causing, you know, complications is when you and yeah, when we look at things like long COVID, one in five adults who have had COVID will develop some type some some symptom or some form of long COVID, whether that's issues with C V D conditions, respiratory conditions, neurological conditions. Um, we're seeing kind of the long term disability that the pandemic is actually causing and no one's talking about that, right? Um, so I, you know, so people say, oh, you're vaccinated. Yes, vaccinations help against severe disease and death, but, you know, we're not talking about folks who have mild cases, sometimes not, you know, non-asymptomatic cases, but still have these long-term consequences that, that we're living with. Um, and so I think it has been frustrating, to say the least, um, that our decision makers have not put together a comprehensive, multi-layered, multi-faceted approach to prevention um, in the face of this pandemic. Well, I saw that CDC did rep- did uh, recommend that when you're inside, you know, to wear masks in public places. Mm-hmm. But that that must like I don't know. People yeah, aren't it's a recommendation, to the and CDC. then they took away, you know, the you know the judge that basically nullified the mandate to wear on on planes and other forms of public transportation. Um, I mean, it's just, it it blows my mind every time I think about the ways we have just dismantled public health. So public health is about the prevention of the, it's about health, but at the public level. And we very much individualize this uh, pandemic to kind of say, you know, you're in it on your own, you make your own decisions. That's just not public health. Um, and again, if we're also concerned about equity, particularly for those who've been most harmed and ha- before the pandemic had all these, you know, um, um, health inequities, you know, it's definitely not an equity approach. Right. And so um, it's been challenging, but I don't you know, there's no signs that we're going to change course, unfortunately, in our approach uh, to, to what's happening. So. You know, I continue to give, you know, folks close to me the recommendations. But again, this should really be a public health um, approach to, to, to prevention in this in this situation. Yeah, I have a question. I mean, could mm-hmm. this just linger on? I mean, what's going to when, when is this? I guess it's never going to go away. <laughs> it's I guess just right. going to well, be like. Go yeah. ahead. I mean, I think we're the scientists who are really kind of the infectious disease epidemiologists are still learning. We're still un- trying to understand and unpack, you know, how how this is going to operate. Um, right now, we I don't you know I don't see any signs of it, uh, you know, going into what folks were calling the endemic stage. We're still very much if we're seeing kind of cases continue to kind of go up and down and up and down. Um, so, I don't, you know, I don't have a, a good answer to that, and I'll have to look at the literature. You know, I always say, well, let me check the literature first. But, you know, I don't have a good answer to that based on what I've seen um, over the past few weeks of if we know when it's going to, you know, when it will quote unquote end. Um, but I do know that we, you know, um, especially as we're going into, you know, these next phases, we need to con- we need to be doing things that protect people you know, on so many different levels. And I, I want to swing back around to the Poor People's Campaign work because I think, you know, when I, when the pandemic started, it was the Poor People's Campaign that really was one of the first voices saying, like, we need to protect poor folks and workers and we've, you know, dubbed folks essential but not are not giving them the essential things they need to live, like living wages and, and, and worker protections and things like that, paid sick leave, all, all those things. And so, you know, 
we need the health care and the public health infrastructure to prevent disease. But if we're really going to get at these root causes like po- systemic poverty and systemic racism, we need movements like the Poor People's Campaign that are advocating and really demanding, you know, that everybody, they, they're, one of their mantras is everybody has a right to live. Right. And and that is just true. And so what does that mean to be live in a society where we really believe that everybody has a right to live? And so that's why uh, I'll be in Washington, D.C. on June 18th. Yep. June 18th. June 18th, Washington, D.C., the Moral March, the Poor People's Campaign Moral March okay. and um, Mass Assembly. Um, if you if folks want to know more about that, ppc.org forward slash June 18th. Um, but it is going to be one of the largest gatherings of poor, low-wealth individuals, um, you know, to really demand that the 140 million poor and low-wealth people de- deserve the right to live and to thrive just like everyone else. And I'm really um, excited to to be joining with the Poor People's Campaign and so many other organizers around the country uh, to be a part of this. Well, thank you. And yeah, June 18th. Okay, we will follow up watching that. And uh, it's so wonderful. You're just wonderful. Thank you so much for being with me today, Dr. Cheryl so Barber. <laughs> Director of the Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity, and just a great person. And we end every show with a quote. So I love today's quote. Get ready for today's quote, everyone. What many of us in the field of public health have known for many, many years that racism is a public health crisis said Dr. Sherelle Barber. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. And in the words of Mary Brocker, remember, choose joy. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are the leader in live Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.